0: Thank you, Pastor Laramie and Linda and Charlie and uh, all of you for your singing this morning as we've read God's Word and prayed. We have set our minds, our thoughts towards this idea of the life that is blessed in Christ. Take your copy of God's Word and turn uh, once again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, you'll see one there in the pew in front of you, and you should find this passage beginning on page 785. Matthew chapter 5, we are in the Early stages of a, a series through the Gospel of Matthew, and right now we are focused specifically on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount within the Gospel of Matthew. And last week we began uh, considering this idea of the blessed life as we see described here in the Beatitudes. So let me ask you this week: Did your faith flounder, or did your faith flourish? Now I don't mean did you did you have a good week? Did you have a week that was without difficulty? I know that many of you had a a difficult week, perhaps one of the most difficult in your entire life. But were you flourishing? Were you living your blessed life now? As we began contemplating last week, the Beatitudes of Jesus remind us that every blessing that we see here in the Beatitudes ought to describe a Christian. It ought to uh, be a part of our lives. Now, not perfectly. The Beatitudes don't characterize us perfectly, uh, but they ought to mark us prominently. We ought to be able to look at the difference Christ has made in our lives and see the marks of these beatitudes here among us in our walk with Christ. So I ask you, do you need comfort this morning? Are you looking for mercy today? Do you long to see God? Then come to the mountain. Listen to the king as he teaches the blessings that come in the kingdom. We hear the king of the kingdom speak in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you desperately needing your help. It's not so much that the Beatitudes are hard to understand, but we tremble when we recognize how little and how uh, infrequently we live them out. We pray that by the power of your Spirit you would do a work in us and that we would understand your word and we would seek to live it out. And we would give you all the credit and glory. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I've got to be honest, the task ahead of me is insurmountable. Last week, we considered a brief introduction to the Beatitudes, this introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we considered only the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, today, I desire to offer brief yet substantive comments about all of the Beatitudes, the rest of the Beatitudes. Don't worry, we'll be done as soon as the restaurants clear out about mid-afternoon, so you'll be fine. Now, each one of these Beatitudes could be preached on their own. We could have a sermon on each one of these Beatitudes, and we would benefit from zooming in and viewing them in high definition. But I'm afraid that some of us might grow weary on the journey. We might miss some of the impact and the weight that the first audience felt when Jesus first preached these words. Now, like a good sermon introduction, Jesus' Beatitudes will show up again in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're not done thinking about them. They're going to be uh, elucidated. They're going to be expounded upon in the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, as we watch Jesus' ministry, we're going to hear these themes again, and we're going to see him live them out for us. And so we're going to learn more about the Beatitudes even as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel but I ask you do, you, do you really want to be merciful? Well, listen to Jesus. Watch Jesus. He will show you. Do you really want to understand what it means to be a peacemaker? Then follow in the footsteps of the Master, and He will teach you and bless you. Now, the first stop on our journey last week was to understand this idea of blessing, blessing. That's all throughout Scripture. It saturated our service last week. Once again, this week it did. I refer you even to the lyrics of of Pastor Laramie's hymn that he sang. It elucidates this idea that we see there in Scripture of being blessed. But as we saw last time, to be biblically blessed, it's not the same as being blessed in the eyes of the world. The eyes of the world, they use the word blessed all the time, but it doesn't mean what the Bible says that it means. This idea of being blessed is the picture of flourishing, like the mighty oak tree that's growing strong and tall despite all the circumstances in the world around it. It's a healthy tree. It's a flourishing tree. It's a blessed tree. You see, our blessing is not rooted in our feelings. It's rooted in the fact of God's Word. Our blessings are not based on our circumstances. They're based upon Christ. Our relationship with Christ is the source of our blessings. You see, in Christ, we are flourishing, no matter what's going on in the world around us. In Christ, we are blessed. As we saw last week with this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we had to come to recognize that this blessing doesn't come in our own strength. Rather, it only comes through recognizing our own weakness. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that you're morally bankrupt that you have nothing to offer god you have no hope of entering the kingdom in your own power in your own might but you're blessed in christ when you when you recognize your need of christ not just in the moment you first believe but every hour every day we need our lord as we sang earlier so blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven Now we continue working our way through, starting in verse 4 through the end of the passage. Let us understand the Lord's blessings. Verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is a shocking paradox. It's a statement that doesn't sound like it could possibly be true. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the sad. That's what he seems to be saying. This is a, a paradox. G.K. Chesterton described a paradox as truth standing on its head, calling for attention. What truth is calling for attention from this verse? What exactly are we supposed to mourn? You may be interested to know that the New Testament has nine words for sorrow and mourning. And this word that Jesus uses is the strongest. It's the absolute strongest, most severe form of sorrow. It's usually reserved for sorrow over the death of a loved one, as we might expect. But where is the blessing found in mourning the death of a loved one? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Everyone mourns the death of a loved one, whether they're a Christian or not. And in fact, the lost mourn without hope. We as Christians grieve, but we grieve with hope. And so it doesn't seem to be that's what Jesus is referring to. In fact, it's the same depth of sorrow... But it's not the same reason for sorrow. So the depth of which we grieve when we lose a loved one, it's that depth of mourning, but it's not for that reason. Let's keep going to figure out why are we supposed to mourn. Don Carson has noted that if the blessed and the poor in spirit is intellectual, then blessed are those who mourn is emotional. When we recognize our poverty of spirit, as we saw in verse 3, that ought to lead us to mourn in great depth our need of a Savior. We ought to mourn for our sins. We ought to mourn just how wicked and vile we are and how much we don't measure up to a holy God. Now, don't misunderstand. To say that the Christian is, ought to be one who, who ought to mourn, that, that doesn't mean that we ought never to laugh. The Bible is clear. A merry heart does good like a medicine. I'm not saying that the mark of a true Christian is that we're to be mourning every second of the day. But here's the question. What things are we laughing at? And what things are causing us to sorrow? What things are we mourning over? You see, I'm afraid that the devil has caused many of us to laugh at all the wrong things. Let me give you an example, and I had to learn this the hard way. We all bemoan the fact of the, the, the wickedness of most of what's on television. We look at, at current television shows and we, we say, My goodness, how is that going on? How are they putting that on TV? Until you go back in your mind and you remember the things we used to laugh at. You think about the television show Friends from the 90s that popularized and made so very common on television homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, even adultery. You go back before that to Seinfeld. We laughed about pornography and other things I won't say in mixed company on Seinfeld. And you go back before that to Dallas and we laughed at uh, the greed and the adultery and all the things that were going on there. And you can go back to pretty much your favorite TV shows, my favorite TV shows, and we bought into the lie that we could laugh at something that the Bible calls sinful. Go all the way back to the Andy Griffith show. We laughed at Otis the Drunk instead of feeling pity and condemning his alcoholism. You see, the devil has convinced us that we can laugh at the things that God calls sin. Satan has done a a subtle and deadly work. But make no mistake, it didn't start just with television. It didn't start with the invention of the smartphone or the internet. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Satan would have us to laugh at the sins for which we ought to mourn. And the long-term effects of this are that we're a people who don't know how to mourn. We're a people that don't know how to repent. Far too often in the Christian life, we rationalize away our sins. We make excuses. But you see, real repentance doesn't rationalize. True repentance doesn't make excuses. Listen to the words of David Brainerd. He was a missionary to the American Indians in the 1700s. He wrote in his journal in 1740, he said, In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted. And bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. When was the last time you responded to God's word that way? Simply reading God's word in your morning devotion and being moved by seeing how desperately we need a Savior. Do you mourn over your personal sins? You see, the King of the Kingdom has much to say about this. Do you mourn over national sins? You see, we see examples of that in the Bible, and so often we see examples of mourning over sins that are still taking place. And that's different than our culture today because we like to mourn over sins that are in the past. It's so easy to see the sins from the past. We can easily spot the sin of slavery in our nation's history. We can give thanks to God that that heinous evil no longer characterizes our nation today. But what about the sins of today Do we mourn over the sins of our people today? Do you mourn the slaughter of millions of children in the wombs of their mothers? Do you have righteous indignation when so called pro life leaders tell us that they are working hard to eradicate this wickedness from our land when they refuse to fight for the complete abolition of abortion? They look us in the eye and they refuse to call abortion murder and they refuse to see anyone punished under the laws that we already have on the books dealing with murder. That's enough to cause us to mourn, and that's one example. We have much as a nation to mourn over. What about in the church? The Bible instructs us to mourn at times as a church. The Corinthian church was condemned because they were arrogant in their sins rather than mourning. When Jesus tells us here, blessed are those who mourn, that's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing, continuous process. You see, Christians today generally speaking, don't know how to mourn. We don't know how to mourn. Why is that? One pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, it's because of our defective doctrine of sin and the shallow idea of joy. Do You hear what he's saying? We misunderstand sin and we misunderstand joy. We think that sins are little things to be brushed under the rug. We don't take our sins seriously. And we think joy is to be equated with mere momentary happiness, and so we're always looking for that next moment of happiness, and we always miss biblical joy. You understand, according to God's Word, there are worse things than being sad. We try to escape sadness every step of the way, but there are worse things than being sad. There's the inability to be sad. Sometimes we're unable to mourn the things that we ought to mourn. There's the inability to call sin, sin which seems to plague so many today. Sinclair Ferguson said, The child of the kingdom knows higher joys as well as deeper sorrows, more sensitive mourning, but also more profound comfort. Now that he is the Lord's, his emotional sensitivity becomes greater, not less. This is the promise of the Beatitude, that we will receive comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, it seems, as you read the Beatitudes here, that the passage Pastor Laramie read from Isaiah 61 is ringing in the background. That it's clearly in the context of what Jesus is saying, because so many of the themes from the Beatitudes show up in that passage from Isaiah 61. There, the prophet points forward to the day of what Jesus says, they will be comforted. Well, how does that comfort come? Does it mean we just sit around and wait and we say, well, time heals all wounds, No, the God of all comfort provides comfort through the comforter the Holy Spirit and in order that we might comfort others second Corinthians 1 the word comfort is all over the passage God himself will comfort us blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted they are being comforted now we're promised comfort in the Christian life and we will be ultimately perfectly comforted in the future Listen to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus keeps going. That would be enough, but He keeps going. Blessed, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is just as shocking as the other Beatitudes. You see, the world doesn't treat meekness as a virtue. When we hear meekness, we think weakness. We think a lack of courage. We think that it must mean inaction. But the idea essentially means gentleness, not weakness. But listen up, especially men, because we don't think too highly of gentleness either. Gentleness is not a virtue in our society any longer. Gentleness doesn't sound very appealing, but biblically speaking, gentleness is a picture of strength under control. Strength under control. This word for meekness or gentleness, it was sometimes used to describe a medicine that would powerfully heal you, but it would not harm you. Have you ever had a medicine before that it would have been great if it didn't have side effects? If it did exactly what it was supposed to and provide the cure, but it had no side effects, that would be wonderful. But it wasn't a meek medicine. It was a harsh medicine. Medicine that it will heal you and not harm you. Now, that's a, a gentle, a meek medicine. You no know, strength under control. This word is also often used for a horse of a stallion. Have you ever seen a young horse with fire in its eyes and you think there's no way anybody is going to ride that horse? Through time... Whether it's days, maybe weeks, maybe even months, but you come back and the horse is so gentle that even a child can ride it. Has that horse lost the strength that it had? Is it no longer as strong as it once was? No, it's strength under control. It's meek. Jesus used the word to describe himself. Matthew 11, he said, I am gentle and lowly of heart. I am meek and lowly. Now, No one who truly knows Christ would consider him to be Weak, He's the definition of strength under control. Now, watch watch the progression that Jesus is giving us. He says, When we're poor in spirit, we rightly recognize our need of a Savior. We have nothing in and of ourselves to commend ourselves to God. We're poor in spirit. But then that ought to lead us to mourn. We mourn our condition and we find comfort in the Savior. But then that leads us to meekness and gentleness because now... We have a right view of ourselves. We see ourselves rightly, and we see the world around us rightly, and because of that, we are blessed. We see ourselves rightly. We're blessed in Christ, and we have his cleansing from the stain of sin. He's breaking that desire for sin in our lives that we all have, so we see ourselves rightly. We begin to see the church rightly. We recognize that the local church is God's local embassy under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The local church is not our own personal kingdom, and it's not filled with perfect kingdom citizens. But the king is at work in his embassy in the local church. And because we understand that, we are blessed. We see the world around us rightly. We see ourselves rightly. We see the church rightly. We see the world around us rightly. Because when we see all sorts of evil spiraling out of control, we don't spiral out of control in fear. We don't rage out of control thinking that it's up to us to somehow fix the problems ourselves. In meekness, in gentleness, in strength under control, we look to the king of the kingdom, trusting in the Lord and doing good. We see ourselves rightly and we are blessed. That may all sound well and good until your, your meekness is tested. Do you ever wonder how would your meekness be tested One pastor said the man who is truly meek is the man who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Listen carefully. Meekness is that attitude towards God that says if God never does another thing for me, he's already blessed me far more than I deserve. Meekness towards one another is the attitude that if you really knew who I was apart from Christ, if you could only see the difference that Christ has made in my life, that's the attitude of meekness. You see, it's one thing for you to recognize that you're a sinner and to call yourself a sinner. What happens when somebody calls you a sinner? Do you bristle or do you agree? You say, it would only be worse if you really knew who I was. It would be worse if you could see me apart from Christ. That's the attitude of meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, we would expect the opposite right? And that's And They would have expected the opposite in their day as well. We don't think the meek will inherit anything. Only the strong will survive. Frederick Nietzsche heard this verse, and he said, no, blessed are those who assert themselves, those who take power. That's not what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The Old Testament is all over the background of what Jesus is saying. If you're making notes, you could write Psalm 37. Go read Psalm 37 later, but in that is the reference that Jesus is making about inheriting the earth. And in Psalm 37, the meek do not fear the evildoers around them. They're not afraid of everything going on in the world. Rather, their trust is in the Lord. He himself will determine who inherits, who receives, and who enjoys the earth. There's so much more that we could explore about this idea of inheriting the earth, but Jesus will tell us more as we go through our study of Matthew's Gospel. If we're climbing the Beatitudes, climbing a mountain, we reach the top. We reach the apex of the Beatitudes right here in verse 6. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst, those are the most basic of our human experiences. From the moment a child is born until the moment we close our eyes in death, we experience some degree of hunger and thirst. These are actually signs of life. They're not a weakness. Hunger and thirst are signs of life. Think about it. If you've had a loved one who was sick, what was one of the things that tipped you off? They weren't hungry. They weren't thirsty. That's always a big red flag. It lets you know that something's wrong. Hunger and thirst lets us know that everything is as right as it ought to be. We have those, those appetites. But we've never been this hungry before, this thirsty. I doubt any of us in this room have experienced the hunger and the depth that, and the thirst and the depth that it would have been so common in Jesus' day. They knew what it meant to truly hunger, to be almost at the point of death, of starvation, because they lacked food, they lacked water. Are we ever at the point of starvation in thirsting after God? He says here, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, for what? Righteousness. What is righteousness? We see Paul talk about righteousness, and that's the idea that our accounts have been settled with God. But that's not the way Jesus is using the word. Here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, when he says righteousness, he's talking about a godly life. How do we live our lives? Are we living a godly, righteous life? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to live a godly life they will be satisfied. King David was a human just like you and I. He had mighty victories over sin, but he also had terrible defeats when he succumbed to sin. Listen to what David said on his best of days. Psalm 63, verse one: "O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Once again, Psalm 17, verse 15, David writes, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Does this create in you a desire for righteousness? Or are you repulsed by this type of devotion? Make no mistake, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, there was once a time when you were hungry. There was once a time when you hungered and thirsted after God's righteousness. If you're not hungry and thirsty today, what happened? Why are you no longer hungering and thirsting after the Lord? Do you remember what your parents would always tell you about eating between meal times? Don't eat a snack, it'll ruin your appetite. Don't eat a snack, it'll ruin your supper. Far too many Christians have ruined their appetite for God by snacking on the world. We snack after all the things that the world has to offer, the junk food of the world. So I ask you, what are you hungry for today? Most people are hungry for happiness. Most people are, are searching after the blessings, but they don't want the one who blesses. They don't want the, the sovereign bread of life to come and give them the blessings. They just want the blessing. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. Full until you can eat no more. Just like when Jesus fed the thousands, they were all satisfied, and there were baskets upon baskets of leftovers. And notice here, who's going to do the filling? It says they will be satisfied. They can't do it on their own, and we can't do it on our own. There's nothing in and of ourselves that we can fill ourselves with. There's nothing inherent in us that we can eat and drink and and fill ourselves, we must look to God and God alone. He is the one who will satisfy us. So I encourage you, come today. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but come to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. He alone can satisfy. Do you thirst for righteousness? Do you thirst for a fresh start? Do you desire to be cleansed of your sins? Come to Jesus Christ, the living water, and you will never thirst again. Dear children, the world offers so many things that appear to be tasty, so many things that seem to satisfy, but they all leave you empty. Every one of them, every time, come to Christ today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. But now we begin the descent down the other side of the mountain of the Beatitudes. If the, the blessings of ascent dealt with our inner attitude, attitudes, then these blessings as we go down the mountain deal with our outward actions. There's a clear shift in verse 7. He says, blessed are the merciful. That's an outward action for they shall receive mercy. Now simply put, mercy is compassion in action. Compassion in action. Mercy doesn't stop with, with just feeling compassionate towards someone. Mercy puts compassion into action. Kent Hughes tells the story of a preacher in the 1800s who he came upon a crowd, and they were gathered around a man whose horse had just tragically died. And everybody there was just telling the friend how sorry they were. I'm so sorry this happened to you. Oh, I know it's going to be bad. Oh, I'm so sorry. And that's all they had to offer. And so the preacher stepped up to the one who was sympathizing the loudest, and he said, I'm sorry, five pounds. How much are you sorry? I'm sorry, five dollars worth. How much are you sorry? Are you willing to put your money where your mouth is and actually show your compassion and help this man uh, recoup the cost of a new horse? You see, mercy is compassion and action. It's not merely a feeling. We just think of being merciful as being a feeling or an idea, but it's compassion and action. It's been simply put by one preacher that kindness is a friend calling you when you're well. Mercy is a friend calling you when you're sick. Have you received that sort of mercy before? When you're not well and your friends are willing to enter into your circumstances and they're willing to meet you where you are and they're willing to help you right where you are. That's mercy. Calvin explains that they are blessed who are not only prepared to put up with their own troubles but also take on other people's troubles to help them in their distress, freely to join them in their time of trial, and, as it were, to get right into that situation that they may gladly expend themselves on their assistance. They're willing to put their money where their mouth is. They're willing to put compassion into action. And you see, when we remember the mercy that we've received from God, we're ready to extend mercy to others. Now, when we forget the mercy that we've received from God, then we begrudge giving mercy to anyone else. Jesus makes this clear later in Matthew's gospel in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember that parable? The man who had been forgiven millions of dollars in debt was unwilling to forgive a friend who owed him just a few thousand dollars. And the master of the servant comes back and says because you're unwilling to show mercy to him I'm not going to show you mercy and he throws him into jail because the servant refused to extend mercy to others the master refused to extend mercy to the servant make no mistake showing mercy is not a reason for your salvation but it is a result of your salvation God is not forced to save you simply because you have shown mercy to someone else we might be tempted to read the text that way Sometimes people read the Beatitudes, as we've talked about, they think of it like a contract. If I do my part, God will do his part. But you understand, we can't do our part. If it depended on ourselves to save ourselves, we could never do it. If we had to save ourselves by showing mercy to someone, you recognize none of us have perfectly shown mercy to anyone. We can't save ourselves simply by showing mercy and saying, Now, God, you owe me my salvation. We're not truly merciful people. But when we have received the mercy of God, we show mercy to others. Forgiven people forgive others. And Jesus will have much more to say on that in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus seems to be quoting that same psalm that we read earlier together, Psalm 24. You remember verses 3 and 4? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Oh, my goodness. If we can worship God only when we have clean hands and a pure heart, then we are all in trouble. And we understand God's not talking about the amount of dirt on our skin. He's not talking about that muscle in our chest that pumps blood throughout our body. But Sometimes we, we wish it were that simple. We wish it were just something external, something that we could do. The Pharisees acted like God had said, blessed are those who are outwardly clean. Their whole system was built around appearing to be good, clean, upright, righteous people. And Jesus warned against this. Do you remember Matthew 23 27 and 28? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. My goodness. James referred to the same idea in James 4, eight. we read earlier, Draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's the tip-off to helping us understand what Jesus is getting at here. You see, when we focus on external appearances, we're double-minded. We're not pure in heart. Jesus is calling us to be single-minded in our devotion, to be pure in heart by being singularly focused on Him above everything else. Most of the time, our devotion is all over the place. Sometimes it's in the right place in a small portion of our lives over here, and then our devotion is everywhere else in every other area of our life. We're double-minded. But the Bible always helps us understand all of these problems. It explains this in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that says, "...the heart is deceitful above all things." and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But when we cry out to God, our merciful God, pleading with Him to make us single-minded, to make us totally focused on Him, to make us pure in heart, we are blessed and we will see God. Now we see God in His Word even now. We can read God's Word and we can see Him, we can know Him through His Word. We get to know God through the Scriptures and we as Christians can see God in ways that non Christians can't see Him. We see God in creation in ways that they deny. We see God's hand of providence throughout history in ways that they deny. But the Bible gives us this wonderful promise. We shall see God. First John chapter three, verses two through three. I think you all have already studied this in your class. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And listen, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You hear the connection even in the Beatitude and what John says 50, 60 years later? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And John says, when you have this confidence, when you are assured that one day in Christ we will see God because of what Christ has done, He says, therefore, purify yourself as He Himself is pure. Well, when we have received the mercy of God and we have become focused in our single-minded devotion on the God who has shown us mercy, then we begin to desire for others to have the same peace with God that we ourselves have experienced. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, when Jesus talks about peace, he certainly has in mind the Old Testament, the Hebrew idea of shalom. You've probably heard that word before, shalom. It's more than just the absence of fighting. That's what we think of peace. That means there's no fighting going on. But it has to do with wholeness, well-being, very close to this idea of flourishing. And when Jesus speaks of making peace, we must understand that that's an active work. We're to be peacemakers. Peace will not magically happen. Peace will not happen with the attitude that says, let sleeping dogs lie. No, making peace in the name of God will require work, and it will require honesty. We can't fall to the temptation of a false peace. Jesus talks about a false peace in the Old Testament When God condemns the prophets who said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So we don't look for a false peace, and we also don't look for appeasement. You know the idea of appeasement. most famous example in the 20th century was the, the British prime minister, Neville Chamberlain. During the time of Hitler, he went to visit with Hitler, and he believed all the lies of Hitler, and he appeased Hitler. And then he came back and announced to Britain and the whole world that we have peace in our times. And I think the very next day, Hitler invaded Poland. You understand this idea of appeasement is not the biblical idea of peace. It doesn't work that way. Peacemakers must first acknowledge that there are real differences, that there's a reason that the peace is not present. Listen to Pastor Kent Hughes. He says a peacemaker is willing to risk pain. Anytime we attempt to bring peace personally or societally, we necessarily risk misunderstanding and failure. If we've been wrong, then there's the pain of apologizing. On the other hand, we may have to shoulder the equally difficult pain of rebuking another. In any case, the peacemaker has to be willing to risk it. The temptation is to let things slide. It's so easy to rationalize that trying to bring true peace will only make things worse. Have you seen this in your own life? Have you seen this in, in your life in church over the years? We're so tempted to treat peace this way. Being a peacemaker is hard work. But Romans 12:18 says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people." Of course, we recognize that the only way this is possible is because Christ is the true peacemaker. He is the prince of peace. He is the one who has reconciled us to God by making peace by the blood of his cross. God calls for us to be peacemakers at home and in the church, and He also calls us to be peacemakers in the world in a way that you might not think being a peacemaker is not a call for pacifism we seek to make peace and and sometimes we might even have to fight for peace making peace in the world will not come through primarily through peace committees through the united nations through the strongest armies or through any human agency even though they all have their place if you want to be a peacemaker share the gospel If you want to be a peacemaker, tell others about the God who brings peace. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man In place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Oh, this is the good news of peace. Those who have received the peace of God through Christ are called sons of God. Are you looking for peace today? Is there strife in your home? Is there strife in your relationships? Or you feel like you're at war with every person you meet? Surrender to the Prince of Peace today. He and He alone can fix your relationships. He and He alone can bridge the gap between you and God. He has come. He's broken down the wall of hostility by the blood of His cross. Listen to Jesus' conclusion to these Beatitudes. Blessed. We've been climbing the mountain of the Beatitudes. We've come back down the other side of the Beatitudes. Christ is reorienting, reorienting our thinking about what it means to be blessed. And he ends here. How strange. He gives the, the final Beatitude there in verse 10, but he knows how hard we're going to struggle with it. And so he gives a clarification. He gives more information there in verses 11 and 12. And I can imagine what someone might be thinking. You mean to tell me, that if I demonstrate all of these things in my life, then the world will not welcome me with open arms? That there will be people who will not only not approve of me, but they'll persecute me? They will revile me, speak hatefully against me? And Jesus hears the question, and he clearly answers yes, that's following Jesus. Notice that it's not if you're persecuted, it's when. Now, we could spend the rest of our time, lunch could get cold, with us telling the stories of Christians who have been persecuted just in this century, just in the last 24 years. The stories of those who have given their lives since the year 2000 for the cause of Christ. This is not new. This goes back all the way to the founding of the church. We see it happening even in the New Testament. The early Christians were most certainly reviled. They were hated. They were spoken against and some were even killed. They were called all sorts of terrible, hateful names. They were called cannibals. Can you imagine that? Why would the early Christians be called cannibals? Because we talk about eating and drinking the blood and the body of Christ. Non-Christians heard that, what we would talk about the Lord's Supper, and they said, those are cannibals, have nothing to do with them. What about other things that they were called? They were accused of incest because they called one another brother and sister, and they talked about loving one another. They were called atheists because the world says there's many, many, many gods. And Christian says, no, there's only one God, and his name is Jesus Christ. So they were called atheists. They were accused of hating humanity. Listen to this. They were accused of hating humanity because they didn't go right along with the culture and support every whim of the culture. Does that sound familiar? We're closer to that day today than we've ever been in our lifetimes. We've gone through a season in this nation where Christians have not only been tolerated, but in years past Christians were welcomed. They were leaders in the halls of power. But those days are evaporating before our eyes. Why is that? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. There's been enough time for all that. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. When you don't join in with the sins of the world, they're going to insult you. They're going to hate you. They're going to malign and revile you. How should we respond to that? Peter, in the same letter, tells us, He points to Christ as the example, and he says, "He, when He Jesus Christ was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly." That's how we're how we ought to be. We ought to entrust ourselves to the One who judges justly, just like Jesus did, just like the prophets before them. We are to entrust ourselves to God and rejoice. Now, did you notice there, verse 12, the intense piling up of rejoicing? Rejoice. Be glad. It's joy upon joy. And these are present tense commands. They tell us to keep doing it. We don't wait till the suffering is over to rejoice. We rejoice even now, even in the midst of the persecution, even while it's going on. We look at Acts chapter 5. I'm almost done. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. We see an example of what this looks like. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's foreign to our way of thinking. That we would rejoice when being persecuted For the name of Jesus Christ. We discussed this in our study of Philippians on Tuesday night. If we were all picked up on the way home and taken to jail, our first thoughts would not be, "Now's the time to start a prison ministry. We would all start saying, woe is me. What have I done wrong? How could Jesus let this happen to me, that I'm going to jail for silly reasons? Do we rejoice and be glad? Do we count it all joy no matter what happens? Listen, I wish I could give you a nice three-step formula to implement these Beatitudes perfectly today, right now. But we need to marinate on these things. We need to saturate our minds with the Beatitudes. We need to read them again and again and again and keep bringing them up in our minds, even as we study the Sermon on the Mount, even as we study the rest of Matthew's Gospel. Keep going back to the Beatitudes. And above all, trust the King of the Kingdom. Will you hunger and thirst For righteousness today, when you do, you will be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we feel the distance between our lives and these verses. We recognize how often we fall short, but you promise us according to your word that all who are in Christ are blessed in Christ We recognize these things ought to characterize our lives. We pray that you would make it even more evidently so. Help us to understand your word. Help us to apply it to our lives. And there are those here in this room today that we know, Lord, are apart from you. If they died on the way home, they have no peace with God. They would be separated from you for all of eternity. Lord, your spirit is enough. We pray that by your spirit you would draw them to yourself. They've heard the word preached we pray now that your spirit would draw them to yourself, that you would save mightily, that you would be glorified. But above all, Lord, we pray that your word would not return void, that it would continue at work in all of us today, tomorrow, and to the future. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.